In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today, as usual, we have a very exciting episode for you. Uh, we will start off by talking about the Virginia, uh, upcoming Virginia election. And don't worry, we are going to delve deeply into the national implications of our local election here. Um, then we're going to talk about the Pandora Papers and, um, you know, the, uh, the no-duh realization of all the hidden money. Uh, out there in the world and then finally we're going to talk about ways that uh uh, liberals can improve um their messaging improve the way they can that they communicate yeah i i'm really excited about this first segment i like it when we talk about politics that are a little bit more localized because there's there's always so much to talk about in the national conversation and it's not that those issues aren't important but I mean, you know, one of the things that we always said when I was in my political science classes is that all politics is local. Mm-hmm. Or would it be all politics are local? I don't know. Um, but <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this, and it definitely will have some national implications. One of the things that I do kind of like about living in Virginia as somebody that follows politics is that we have an election every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which... I always thought of it as kind of a burden before I got more deeply into like actual politics. <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, oh my God, another one. I mean, in some ways it is happening. In some ways it is a little bit of a suppression tactic because not as many people show up on off year elections, but yep. I don't know. I, I kind of like it. <laughs> well, you get to show up every year. So. <laughs> well, I do show up every year. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. So Michael, you know what else is showing up? What? COVID numbers. There we go. Here they are. Yeah. Uh, So worldwide, we've hit 240 million cases, which is up from 237 million last week. So that's 3 million new cases in a week or about 430,000 cases a day, which is about the same uh, daily average new cases as we've seen for the last three weeks. Um, So far, we've hit 4.90 million deaths up from 4.85 million last week. So that's 50,000 new deaths in a week, or about 7.1 thousand deaths a day, uh, which is which is down from where we were last week and about uh, the same uh, daily new deaths rate as we had about two weeks ago. Um, Vaccination-wise, we're at 49.2% of the world's population that has at least one dose, which is up 1.9% from last week's 47.3, which is really encouraging because that's actually, uh, so that's a 1.9% increase. The week before was just 1%, so almost double. Um, In the U.S. at this point, we've hit 45.6 million cases, which is up from 45.0 million cases last week. So that's 600,000 new cases in a week, or about 85,000 new cases per day, which is down from 100,000 new cases per day from the week before. So that's a big drop of 15% 
in daily average new cases. In, in terms of death, we've hit 741,000 deaths, up from 729,000 deaths the week before. So that's about 12,000 new deaths this week, which is 1,700 deaths per day. Um, and that's also down about 15% from the week before. So to, be, to put it in perspective, 1,700 deaths per day is still appalling, like very, very high, um, but at least a little bit lower than it was last week and the last couple weeks. Yeah. And in terms of vaccinations, um, we're pretty close to where we've been, although we've we ticked up again a little bit this week, hitting 56% fully vaccinated and 65% with one dose, um, and both of those numbers are up 1% from the week before. Mm. So kind of a mixed story. The I think the big thing is that in the U.S., at least, deaths and cases went down pretty significantly, which is, yeah, that's that's... I think that's a good story. Yeah, that's definitely trending in the right direction. I th- I don't think that it's going to be anytime soon that you and I are going to stop reading the COVID numbers at the beginning of yeah. each episode. Uh, we, at this point, a majority of our podcast episodes have involved us uh, reading those numbers. Yeah, like, sure. This has been this has been most of our po- most of our podcast life. Yep. That's true. What a We're just a COVID podcast, just like any other. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, one of the things that is kind of nice is that the COVID numbers in Virginia are actually not that bad. But yeah. uh, there's a there's a Republican challenger that wants to change that. <laughs> so yeah, let's well, talk. Well, when Democrats are in power, you have to go ahead and take the opposite position. Yeah, so exactly. We've been doing well on COVID. We need someone who's going to do poorly. <laughs> so let's let's talk about the Virginia state election. Uh, we're going to yeah. focus more on the gubernatorial election. Yeah. But I I do also want to acknowledge the fact that in Virginia, uh, we do this we do this weird thing where we elect, uh, where we elect the lieutenant governor who is basically the state equivalent of the vice president mm-hmm. separate from the governor. I don't know why we do that, but we do that. Mm-hmm. So we have a governor race between uh, Republican Glenn Youngkin and um, Democrat Terry McAuliffe and um, no fucking chance. I mean, uh, libertarian candidate um, <laughs> Princess Blanding. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I mispronounced. I, I mispronounced uh, that that party uh, incorrect. I, I, I pronounced that party <laughs> incorrectly. I, I apologize for that. Um, we have uh, lieutenant governors. The on the Democratic side, we have Hala Ayala, and um, Winsome Sears on the Republican side. And for Attorney General, we have uh, Democratic incumbent Mark Herring, mm-hmm. and Republican James Myers. So. Let's focus on the gubernatorial election. Yeah. So, Virginia, although all 100 House House of Delegate seats are also up on on the ballot, that is also uh, correct. So, so right now in Virginia, Democrats have the trifecta: both both uh, chambers, and then um, and then the the governorship, and the uh, lieutenant governorship, and, and, the, and the attorney yeah. generalship. Yeah, we've got uh, pretty much all reins of power, yeah. but. Um, that might change. That might change. It very well might change. So let's let's talk about this for a second. First off, let's talk about some of the ways in which Virginia is kind of weird. 
So Virginia's weird in two ways. Well, I mean, it's weird in lots of ways, but specifically in these two ways. So Virginia is weird in that we have off-year gubernatorial elections. So like the only other state that is going to be having a gubernatorial election this year is New Jersey, which New mm. Jersey is pretty much already a foregone conclusion. Yeah, but uh, poor company to keep. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but... We're also weird in that we have a rule that governors cannot serve two consecutive terms. Mm -hmm. Now, attorney generals can, and I'm pretty sure that lieutenant governors can. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure lieutenant governors can. But governors can't. And Terry McAuliffe was actually a previous governor. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't happen very often. Uh, the, the idea of a, a, a person who was previously a governor becoming governor again. So in the meantime, there was another governor who was Ralph Northam, Northam, who was actually lieutenant governor under Terry McAuliffe. So Terry McAuliffe as governor really didn't get much done. Now, to be fair to him, he did have a Republican-controlled House of Delegates and a Republican-controlled Senate, mm. but... So did Ralph Northam, and he managed to expand Medicaid. So I'm just saying. I mean, it was closer, but Terry McAuliffe was really not a super effective Democrat. The His biggest accomplishment was the fact that him becoming governor meant that this dude named Ken Cuccinelli did not become governor. The Cooch. Nice. The Cooch. <laughs> uh, and the Cooch was fucking insane. Like, he was straight up saying that we should bring back Virginia sodomy laws like and enforce Virginia sodomy laws making like sex between consenting adults illegal like yeah. guy was fucking nuts um so anyway that was Terry McAuliffe's biggest accomplishment and it looks like he might if he does win he might have a little bit more of an ability to accomplish stuff under the uh, current democratic rule but if we maintain it if we maintain it um but I'm really not too hopeful about him at this point. Yeah. The focus of this segment is going to be much more about talking about why he's superior to his opponent rather than why he's a good candidate, because he's really not a good candidate. I mean, but I mean, such is the nature of our politics, right? Like you don't yeah. have to love your 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 favorite candidate; it just has to be better than the other guy. And he is in this case. Yes, <laughs> he absolutely is. Uh, so there's there's a few things. So real quick, I do want to talk about some of the reasons in which I think that Terry McAuliffe is a really shitty candidate and some of the mistakes that I think he's making. And, mm. and also the fact that... So Joe Biden completely like trampled all over Trump in the state of Virginia. It was like... Yeah, 10 points. He was like, yeah, one by 10 points. There's no yeah. reason why this should be competitive. But it is competitive. They're actually in basically a dead heat in polling, yep. which is extremely disappointing. So here's why I think that is. So number one, Terry McAuliffe is really not an exciting candidate. I mean, there's nothing really special about him other than the fact that he was a previous governor. There's no policies that he has that are all that special. One of the things that really pisses me off is... He used to be straight up against uh, repealing Virginia's right to work status. And now he's basically at the point where he's like, well, I mean, if it gets on my desk, I'll sign it, but it's not going to get to my desk. 
gotcha. which basically communicates to us that it's not something he's going to fight for. Not his priority. Which, yeah. considering considering the fact that we do, if if he does win and we do maintain the House of Delegates, there's no fucking reason why that shouldn't happen. Yeah. So, and we all, talked about that a little bit with when Lee Carter was yeah on, when Lee Carter was on yeah who was a who was a primary candidate and and just like the crippling impact that right to work laws have on unions um, everywhere but but specifically in Virginia yeah yeah and what's hilarious is that as always fucking happens Glenn Youngkin his opponent is trying to is trying to pretend that Terry McAuliffe is this big fighter against right to work. Mm-hmm. And that's a bad thing. Yeah. Which he isn't. <laughs> but if it was, and... that would be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's like it's Glenn Glenn Youngkin's trying to make him look a lot cooler than he actually is. So So there's that. There's also the fact that the entire strategy that Terry McAuliffe is doing right now is fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. His entire strategy is focused around trying to cast Glenn Youngkin as just the second coming of Trump. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. There's a lot stupid of... Stupid idea. <laughs> well, number one, it's a stupid idea because Trump's not on the ballot. Trump's not in yeah. politics anymore. Number two, people care about solutions. People care about policies. All yeah. right? Number three, as terrible as Glenn Youngkin is, and I'm going to talk about how terrible he is of a candidate he is not trump yeah he is not trump yeah and that's the thing um that position is gaining traction among likely mcauliffe voters so 53 percent of likely mcauliffe voters said that they're very motivated by their feeling towards trump to come out against yunkin um but independent voters are not buying it yeah. And they're fine with it, even if they did. So 41% of independent bo- voters said that they think a Yunkin supports Trump, like Trump's position, just the right amount. 13% said he should support Trump's ideas more. So you've got 54% of independent voters that say they want as much or more Trump on the ballot as they currently have. Yeah. Which means that you are handing them what they want when you say Yunkin is Trump. Yeah. And, and that's the independent voters. And then you got the Republican voters. And, and so you're really just like, you're just like giving away the independent vote, which is the big traction that, that Biden got in the state that differentiated the two. And this is, you know, this is, this is a lesson that we should have learned from the presidential election, which is you can only run against Trump if you're running against Trump. Yes. If you're not running against Trump, then don't focus on running against Trump. Biden yeah. beat Trump because he was running against Trump. But the Democrats lost a bunch of seats in the House. They slimmed their majority because partially because a lot of them were more focused on running against Trump when it wasn't Trump that they were running against um, and less yeah. focused on policy. And here's the thing. This should be easy. If, if Terry McAuliffe focused on policy, this would be the easiest race in the fucking world. So, so here's what I mean by that. So, you know, whenever I'm researching candidates, uh, I, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. So I go onto their websites and look at their issues page. 
So, you know, first I went on to Terry McAuliffe's website. I went on to his issues page and he actually, and he has quite a few things on here. Um, some of them aren't as in depth as I'd like them to be, but he does have a pretty comprehensive agenda. You know, he has, um, you know, uh, enhancing education, uh, jobs in the economy, rebuilding Virginia after COVID-19, um, healthcare for all in Virginia, tackling prescription drugs, ending the gun violence epidemic, securing Virginia's clean energy future, creating a flourishing rural economy, agriculture and forestry, higher education, um, you know, computer sciences education, STEM, uh, STEM education, uh, building a strong enterprising ecosystem, uh, creating affordable housing, combating food insecurity, ensuring justice and equality for all Virginians, creating an, a welcoming and inclusive Virginia, supporting women in the workforce, lifting up every black Virginian, supporting Virginia seniors and getting every Virginian vaccinated. Hmm. That's a lot of issues. That's a lot of issues. Interesting that like broadband access is not on there, which is like a key issue for Virginia. Well, I'm wondering. Voters. I, I I haven't I haven't um because there's so much on here, it is a little bit yeah. difficult to. Maybe that's embedded. In, it might in, be. In, it might be embedded in, in the creating a flourishing rural economy. Let me let me mm -hmm. let me look at that real quick. Um. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it is. Yeah, in yeah, the in the go. in the category of um in the category of. Uh, rural economy. It specifically says deliver universal broadband coverage by the end of Terry's term. Yeah, so he does. Yeah. He does address which is that. a huge priority for rural Virginia. Absolutely, which is a huge place where McAuliffe could stand to pick up votes. Yeah. So look, he's not as his policies might not be as ambitious as I'd like them to be, but he at least has a policy. He does have a policy platform, and there's a lot of them. It's fairly it's fairly in depth. Uh, it's broad, and and I think that's that's a plus. So uh, then I went to Yunkins. He doesn't have an issues page. <laughs> the closest thing that he has to an issues page is a day one game plan page. Hey, Glenn, See, guess what? That does what? sound a little bit like Trump. <laughs> You're not only governor for the first day, you idiot. <laughs> he has a, that's all he has. A first, <laughs> a first days, a first day game plan. That's that does all he sound has. actually a lot like Trump. Like Trump, like recycling yeah. the 2016 <laughs> agenda for his 2020 platform, and, here's, and like really not thinking he was going to get elected, and being very lost on his first. <laughs> and here's the hilarious thing: on this page, he lies his ass off brazenly. So first, first he says. Our recovery from the pandemic ranks in the bottom 10 among states. And I read that. I'm like, huh, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, I wonder where he got that from. He doesn't cite where he gets that from. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to find a ranking. So I, I, I went online um, and I found, uh, I found this website called Wallet Hub that uh, actually does do a ranking in terms of economic recovery from states. Now, let's look at the methodology real quick. The things that they are looking at are number one, COVID health, number two, le leisure and travel, number three, economy and labor. So, you know, things like uh, uh, employment rates, um, yep. salaries, things like that. So I looked at this and I looked at where Virginia ranks. Um, in terms of recovery, Virginia ranks 22, which is like wow. around the middle, mm -hmm. but that's still... Like that's still in the top half. Yeah. So that's not bad. I mean, it could be better, but it's not <laughs> yeah, bad. Yeah, but far from bottom 10. And also, 
you know, when I first think of COVID recovery, the first thing I think of is, okay, well, how well did we, well, not just vaccinations, but also what were our case numbers? Yeah. All right. Because his whole thing is, you know, and and what he says is one party democratic control is failing Virginians. All right. Hmm. And he's specifically referring to pandemic. So let's look at our COVID numbers. And this is per capita. According to Statista, we actually have the eighth lowest per capita rate of COVID-19. Hmm. That's really good. Yeah. That is Maybe he meant really top good. 10. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So so right so the first thing he says is is a lie. The secondly, um so he says our students are behind in schools. Well, I mean, yeah, they are because there's a deadly pandemic and we're trying to keep people alive. Then he says, violent crime has risen to a 20 year high. And again, I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I wonder where he's getting that from. He doesn't say where he gets that from. So I'm like, okay, let me see if I can find something. You so, can feel crime rates in your bones when you're a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> so I looked at, uh, I looked at uh, the America's health rating uh, rankings.org. And uh, and this is specifically about uh, violent violent crimes, uh, and this is adjusted per capita. So, in terms of violent crimes per capita, Virginia has actually had a fairly steady decrease since 1992. Mm-hmm. and the number of per capita robberies, uh, rapes, and murders and aggravated assaults that we have is. 208 per 1,000, which to put that into perspective, for 100,000, which to put that into perspective, the United States average is 379 per 1,000. So we actually have per 100,000. Yeah, for per 100,000. So we actually have a pretty low per capita uh, violent crime rate in compared to the rest of the country. And it's certainly not on a 20 year high. In fact, it's like been relatively stagnant for the last, uh, for the last several years. Yeah. So, and there is like, there is a, a national trend since around 2020 for the first time we've seen some upticks in per capita violent crime, Yeah, but, but like it's not nowhere huge. near a 20 near 20 yeah. year high. Yeah, it's definitely exactly. not 20 yeah. year high. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't even I don't even know what the fuck he's trying to say. Like he is brazenly lying, and I, mm-hmm. you know, and it's to make up for the. I think it's to make up for the fact that he doesn't actually have any real plans. Um, he which has is entire- which is the first thing we'll call out as a microcosm in Virginia <laughs> reflecting national yeah. having having like national uh, corollaries because like yeah. as we've talked about again and again, like Democrats tend to be policy intensive, Republicans tend to be fear mongery. So one thing that happened during the election was during one of the debates, uh, Terry McAuliffe, uh, at one point, I, I guess they were asked about parents, uh, parents' involvement in education. And he yeah. said, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Now, when I hear that, I think, duh. Yeah, obviously. I mean, obviously you can't have every individual parent like you, you can't have every individual parent just be like, um, this is what you teachers are going to teach. You're going to teach them that, uh, I don't know that evolution, it doesn't exist, or you're going to teach them that, um, 
two Creationism plus two is equally valid. Or two plus two <laughs> equals five. You're not going to teach them a two plus two equals four. No, no. You like you can't you can't teach what every single parents wants you to parent wants you to teach because then you wouldn't be able to teach anything because parents yeah. often disagree with stuff. The point of education is to give is to give students more knowledge than they would get from their parents. So to me, that just seems like the most obvious thing in the world. Glenn Youngkin has an entire page on his website dedicated to just being like, Terry McCullough doesn't think that parents matter. <laughs> it's like, no, he's not saying that parents don't matter. He's saying that they don't necessarily they decide the curriculum. Experts Yeah, that's why they send the their kids to public school. <laughs> and if they, if they don't want to send their kids to a public school, they can homeschool their kids. Like, yeah. That's that's fine. I mean, that's what your parents did. Yep. You know, and you you turned out pretty smart. Yeah. You know. Average. So <laughs> so uh, so again, that the issue is Glenn Youngkin is primarily focused on reactionary politics, which again, yeah. as Michael said, this is a huge indication of the overall national trend of the Republican Party. Like actually embedded into his website on the the first day platform is banning critical race theory <laughs> that's so funny i love that that's so funny <laughs> nowhere embedded there is a link to what critical race theory is yeah of course they don't <laughs> but that's the thing it's it. it all he needs to do is reflect these national talking points and like yeah. and the thing is like the polling is indicating that this is a local race run on national issues. Yeah. Like like the a huge motivator for people turning out as I as I mentioned earlier for people turning out for McCullough for Yunkin is their feelings about Biden and Trump. Yeah. Could not be less connected. Yeah. Right? And like a, a similarly like a huge a huge motivator of their their likelihood to vote is their national party affiliation. Not surprising, yeah. but um, like, but but pretty instructive. Even even you know, even while um, most like even while there are lots of local issues, the big issues tend to be Biden, Trump, um, COVID nineteen, and jobs in the economy. And the those are like the yeah. big things. And the problem is. Terry McAuliffe has totally taken the bait on that. Exactly. Because, like, right now, Glenn Youngkin's strength is the fact that he does have a riled-up Republican base. Totally. Exactly. Because they're out of power. Yeah, they're out of power. He has a riled-up Republican base. Terry McAuliffe's strength is the fact that he has actual solutions. Like, he has yeah. actual policy ideas. Now... Again, I will say they're not as in-depth as I'd like them to be, and they're not, they don't go as far as I'd like them to be. Mm -hmm. But he has solutions. Glenn Youngkin, by his own admission on his website, has none. Yeah. That's, that's not the focus of his campaign. So the fact that Terry McAuliffe is trying to make this another referendum on Trump uh, is yeah. basically just letting Glenn Youngkin use his biggest strength to to his advantage and completely pushing aside his big like Terry McAuliffe's biggest advantage. Yeah. 
and it might lead to a state that that went five that went 10 points to Joe Biden. Yeah. Going to a Republican. And that is yes. just unacceptable. And what's annoying is that you know what you know what a lot of uh, a lot of moderates are going to take from this if uh, if he loses a lot of moderates need to be more moderate. Yeah, he needs to be more moderate. Oh, this was because uh, this was because everybody was afraid of the Build Back Better plan. Everybody was afraid of the the three point five trillion dollar plan. Nobody wanted that to happen. That's why this happened. Jesus Christ, no. If he loses, it's because he didn't focus on solutions. He let Glenn Youngkin decide what type of election this was going to be, did exactly. not put the yeah. main focus on local issues. I mean, in every single rally, McAuliffe is like, basically says that Youngkin is the second coming of Trump. Yeah. It, God, yeah, I, it, it's so, it's it's a terrible idea, especially as like Biden has become less popular in Virginia. We've seen his disapproval rating, overcome his approval rating. Largely, that shift has occurred with independent voters, people that broke for Biden to contribute to that 10-point win during the uh, during the 2020 election. And so you're literally seeing, um, and, and, it's, and it's also, like, I think, typical for in an uh, off-year um, election to see some swing towards... Um, the the party that's like out of power just you know you see that often in the mid-year after the the presidential election or the midterms after the presidential election but and so he's like literally aligning himself with a less with a, a president who's you know decreasing in popularity um while trump and trying to align his opponent with trump who is garnering some like more popularity he hasn't lost any of his base Republican support, really, and and dissatisfied independents are moving in that direction. And at this point, so at this point, um, 58% of likely Yunkin voters say they are motivated to turn out because of their feelings about Biden versus 53% of McAuliffe voters that say they are motivated by their feeling towards Trump. They don't care as much. Like, the yeah. whole thing is... it is divorce yourself from that national narrative. Focus on the things that matter, you know, the things that are, like, really going to make a difference. Like, people people think that McAuliffe is going to do a better job on vaccines. Um, mm. And yet, um, and yet, like, he can't seem to, and, 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 and people widely support, like, businesses mandating vaccines for employees in Virginia. And, like, like, the, like, supporting COVID-19 measures is a popular thing in Virginia. And, um, and yet like McAuliffe is kind of, you know, yeah, giving away, giving away the election, you know, because of how this is being framed. And the thing is, I'm worried because it seems that Glenn Youngkin opposes mass mandates. I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. One of the yeah. things that has been really nice about, uh, about being able to be in person is that yep. there is a mask mandate. Everybody in my class has to wear a mask. And yep. there have been some of my students that have gotten COVID, but not very many. And mm -hmm. we have found that when just everybody's wearing a mask, you really don't need to close down as much uh, as many things. Yeah. But that goes away. All the people packed into a tight classroom that is just going to be a hotbed for COVID. And I'm really worried for my students 
if if Yunkin wins. Totally. And that's what Terry McAuliffe needs to focus on. Yeah, I completely agree. The, th- the thing that's also really worrying for me is the fact that because McAuliffe and Yunkin are really seem to be casting themselves in in terms of this national narrative. I don't think it would be I don't think it would be appropriate for anyone to conclude that there's something different about this Virginia election that makes it a a, a less strong predictor of midterm outcomes than yeah. the Virginia election has been in the past. Yeah. So so in past years under overperformance in the gubernatorial results um, relative to like the prior presidential election has been a, have been very similar to under or overperformance in the national house vote uh, during the midterms. So in cycles since 2002, the difference between how much Democrats outperformed their base um, in the average governor's race with um, uh, and the average house vote has been, you know, that difference has just been 1.6%. So there's a very small variance between their over or underperformance um, in the governor's race versus the over, like the national house vote. And since 1978, the party that has won the state's governor's race has gone on to gain seats in the House of Representatives eight of the 11 elections. Yeah. So, like, the headline here is, like, Democrats were set up to outperform in Virginia. We, we Biden led by 10 points, um... And if we do overperform, that could be a really good predictor for a strong performance in 2022 midterms. But the thing is, it seems really close. Right now, we're well in the margin of error in polling between the two candidates. And if we are close or we lose, that does not bode well for holding on to seats in the midterms in 2022. And and there's no reason to think, I think, that this election is somehow a fluke. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Nathan, we do Tips for Good every week um, because... You really know how to make me cry when you give me those ocean eyes. I'm scared. I've never fallen from quite this high, fallen into your ocean eyes. Those ocean eyes. My eyes are hazel, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, shit. Then that can't be right. Yeah, no. Uh, I guess it's, I guess it's, oh, shit, I got to come up with something. Uh, To make the world a better place. How about that? Yeah. That's why we do tips for good. I'll accept that. I'll accept that. Yeah, okay. Great. So yeah. we do tips for good to make the world a better place. There we so go. So Nathan, what, pray tell, is our tip for good this week? Our tip for good this week is to do some kind of gesture, like small gesture. So during the pandemic, a lot of people have lost their life, or a lot of people have lost time, or a lot of people have lost loved ones. And... Sometimes small gestures can really make a person's day. So the the thing that inspired this was an old friend of mine from back when I taught at George Mason University. This semester was a really rough semester for her. She she lost an old friend of hers. She lost a grandmother. 
and she 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 teaches at uh, at George Mason. And her students surprised her one day by getting her by pulling together and getting her this bouquet of flowers. Just like brought it in for her one day. And there's this there's really cute video that she had posted on Facebook showing her reacting to it and it just it made me feel so good. Like I almost I almost wanted this to be a good actually. Mm-hmm. But I think we should make it some type of tip for good because some people might be grieving over the loss of a loved one due to this pandemic. Somebody might be having a rough time because of this pandemic. Think about somebody in your life like that and come up with some type of small gesture to let them know that, that you care because that really can go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. This is something I've been trying to do more specifically just like reaching out to people more. Yeah. Um, sometimes all it takes is just like a short text saying, Hey, I'm thinking of you. I'm proud of you. You're doing great things. Yeah. And, and that can really make a difference. Yep. So that's tips for good. Okay. So for this segment, we're going to continue our series of bear shitting in the woods. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're talking about the Pandora Papers. Oh well, I just I just looked outside. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's nighttime and it appears to be dark. Yeah. Yes, yes. Huh. Breaking news: Water's it's, wet. It's dark at night. Yep, dark at night. Snow's cold, and rich people are hiding their money to avoid taxes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, so the Pandora Papers were a leak of nearly twelve million documents, including. Um, yeah. You know, spreadsheets, contracts, images, yeah. um, and they they this reveal is, this is almost three terabytes worth of information, by the way. Yeah. Like Yeah. <laughs> Millions of documents. <laughs> um and they kind of reveal the way that very wealthy people are hiding their wealth, avoiding taxes, um, in some cases laundering money, um, and 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 this is just you know a subset of all the documents obviously that are out there. I think there were like thirteen or fourteen firms that um, from which files were received, and it took six hundred journalists um, in seventeen countries working through the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists in Washington D.C. Um, to to go through these documents, and we've started to see some of these, uh, some of like the revelations that are coming out of here. Um, <clears throat> what some of the things they've found are that you know, three hundred and thirty politicians from ninety countries use secret offshore companies to hide their wealth. Um, among the account owners from these fourteen firms, a uh, hundred and thirty. People listed are billionaires uh, that are on the Forbes, uh, you know, the Forbes billionaire list. Um, And the thing is, like, again, you know, of course they do, right? Like, we've been hearing about wealthy people hiding their money offshore forever. It's just how wealthy people have money. It's one of the ways they stay wealthy. Um, But again, it's it's like those stories that come out where... You know, some Republicans, pol- some Republican politicians, mistress just had an abortion. We know that's happening. You know, yeah. What? 
Yeah. How is this news? <laughs> yeah. But it is, I think, like, similar to, like, the Facebook news from last week. Um, it's really important to keep talking about the and keep investigating and putting evidence and, uh, behind these issues and keeping these kinds of stories resurfacing in the news. Yeah. Um, and, and specifically, like, doing this in a detailed way to show um, not just that, you know, yeah, rich people are, you know, doing unethical things with their money, but also that, you know, rich people are using their hidden wealth to uh, drive corruption. Yeah. Wealth, or, you know, poor nations are led by people that are secret billionaires. Yeah. Um, corruption is rampant. And not only not only is this important for, like, you know, us as news receivers and as people that are interested in thinking about how to craft policy and, and shape the world and things like that. Um, it's also really important because, you know, this isn't just wealthy people hiding, you know, wealth. This is, you know, criminals protecting their money. This is, you know, the perfect way to hide wealth from criminal activities. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, and ultimately this is a system that humans have set up that we should push policymakers to do something about. Because the thing is, if 330 politicians from 90 countries are benefiting from the loopholes and, and the legal structures that enable people to, um, you know, hide money, avoid taxes, uh, hide wealth. If 330 politicians are, are benefiting from that, at least, that means that the people that are responsible for crafting the laws are benefiting from the shitty laws. Yeah. And that's something we need to hold them accountable for. And the fact that we've got now 330 names is a way to hold them accountable. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Some of the some of the um, some of the big revelations, uh, as Michael talked about, there there are a lot of there's a lot of leaders of countries, some of which are a little bit more poor, that uh, came up in this specific document. So the king of Jer Jordan has seventy million euros uh, on a, a spending spree in in the UK mm -hmm. through secretly owned companies. The uh, one of the leading families of Azerbaijan <laughs> has uh, hidden property deals in the UK worth over four hundred million euros. The uh, the Czech Jesus. prime minister um, failed to declare an offshore investment company, which was used to purchase two French villas for twelve million euros. Oh my God! The family of the Kenyan and the thing president. about the Czech prime minister is that. He's running as a populist. He's yeah. running as anti-European elite. Yeah. And so the fact that, you know, he purchased $22 million worth of chateaus in France is like an important part of that story, right? Yeah. Same thing with the president or the king of Jordan. is like yeah. his country receives billions of dollars of aid from yeah. the U.S. And yet through shell companies, he owns three adjacent homes in California 
yeah. three or in and has spent ten million dollars on luxury condominiums in Georgetown in Washington D.C. and has three multi-million dollar residences in London that form a complex ne- near Buckingham Palace. And yet he runs one of the poorest countries on earth. I mean, this is cartoonish villainy at this point. It is. Like it is. Like the the family of the Kenyan president has apparently mm-hmm. secretly. Uh, owned a network of offshore companies for like the last few decades. I mean, yeah, that are worth more than thirty million dollars. And and yeah. again, he has his whole persona, his platform is anti-corruption, increased transparency, and yet he just as you know other corrupt individuals, um, you know, in 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 a, in a relatively poor nation, is you know, with his family is hiding like a tremendous amount of wealth. There's also like, there's no reason to put, you know, these to, to hold these things secretly unless you're trying to hide them from people. Yeah. Now, one of the biggest issues here is the fact that as, as Michael pointed out, the people that are a lot of, a lot of the people that are making laws are people that are actually benefiting from those laws. Like that, that they make it easier for people to, to hide money offshore. Yeah. So one of the things that has been going on recently that's actually, there's actually been a big conversation about is the idea of a global minimum corporate tax rate set mm-hmm. at set at 15%. And there's actually been some progress on that front. So it still does need to be uh, like, it still does need to be passed through like United States Congress and there's some other hurdles that needs to that needs to go over, but something like that, like 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 something like a problem like this, is something that really does need to be solved on a global level. It can't just be one country mm-hmm. passing yeah. certain laws. I mean, laws should be passed within countries that basically provide financial disincentives for people to to do this. And we should have, you know, we should definitely have laws on the book that basically say, hey, look, if you're if you're doing business in the United States, if your business primarily is held within the United States, like you can't, you can't be hiding your money in offshore accounts. Sure. And if you try to, then there's going to be, there's going to be financial consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what like the corporate minimum global minimum tax rate is kind of aimed at, uh, leveling the tax disparities among nations, so you can't just you know do what Facebook and and uh, you know has, and Apple have done, where they like they locate in Ireland and they've got like one dude with a post office box, and then <laughs> and then all of a sudden they pay like the, one of the lowest tax rates in the world. So like that definitely covers part of it because um, you know there's like a lot of taxable money out there that is being just housed in these places with low tax rates to just avoid paying like a quote unquote fair share. To be fair, that's a legal, that's an, that's a legal thing to do, right? Like putting your money somewhere, housing it in shell corporations is totally legal, which is a problem. And one of the things that we should address, we should aim to address with laws. Another huge issue, which, which the corporate, minimum tax rate and a global minimum tax rate, even on individuals would not address necessarily is secrecy, Mm. which is, which is one of the, the big 
things at issue and like discovered in these papers. There's a reason why we had no idea why these things, like who owns these millions and billions of dollars worth of real estate. It's because you are able to layer these shell companies. You've got firms that specialize in creating uh, corporations on paper only. And by locating those corporations in certain nations that have laws that protect the secrecy of the owners of the of various corporations, you're literally not able, except when you get a document leak like this from the firms that manage these shell companies, you're literally not ever able to figure out who owns what, which is a huge, huge problem. So like, um, not only does that prevent people from, you know, paying their fair share in taxes because we don't know that they own this wealth that we might be able to tax, um, which, by the way, would be a huge problem with like wealth taxes in general is the ability to hide your wealth. All of a sudden, you're not as wealthy because you just happen to, because there's no way to trace back to you all the money that you have housed in shell companies. Um, the other thing is that... Um, one of the, you know, as I mentioned before, like this is a very effective way to hide money as a criminal, to launder money, even as like a terrorist organization. You know, money laundering is one of the primary ways of funding international terror. And that is because um, those organizations are not able to have bank accounts. Well, as long as you hide your wealth, it's no problem. The other thing is it's it's really good at hiding money gotten via criminal means by black market wealth and things like that. And one of the most devastating and unjust seeming um, examples is that you're able to hide wealth that you owe someone else that they're not able to get. For example, some of the most devastating cases have been in, in, in um, uh, cases where, you know, wealthy people have done terrible things to other people, right? Sometimes even like physically assaulting them. And they've been sued, right? They lost the lawsuit. And yet, because their wealth is housed secretly in offshore inaccessible places, the people that successfully sued them don't see a dime. It's literally a way to circumvent every financial implication of our legal system for the people with enough wealth to have these shell companies set up. And for the most part, uh, it's pretty much legal. And that's a huge problem. Obviously, money laundering is never legal, but <laughs> obviously funding terror is not legal. But like, But a lot of these practices are, and we should demand from our lawmakers that they should be made illegal. Because, like, this is a huge amount of money. According to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the total amount of money hidden in offshore accounts, which obviously because of their secrecy is really hard to pin down, is between $5.6 and $32 trillion, somewhere in that range. To put that into perspective, that's between 25% and 140% of the entire US GDP hidden offshore. And just the tax implications of that would be huge. So 
approximating that would lead to about $600 billion in avoided taxes each year. To put that into perspective, that would be about 18% of the total U.S. tax revenue. All hidden away. Hmm. So not only are there huge implications for justice, right? Not only are there huge implications for our tax system, um, there are enormous implications for just like having any type of system that is fair in any way for the wealthiest individuals. By not being able to see any of these transactions, by not being able to know who owns what assets, the world, you know, the, the financial lives of very wealthy people is totally inaccessible, meaning that the laws just don't work on them the same way, which is just crazy. And, and on top of that, like, one of the revelations here is that increasingly these, sec- like, tax havens and, and secret places for hiding money are inside the U.S., like we wouldn't, we don't have to do international relations in order to solve these. South Dakota is now a huge tax haven with tens of millions of dollars from outside the U.S. sheltered by trust companies in Sioux Falls. Um, and and more states, Nevada and a bunch of other states, have started to have like enact similar secrecy laws, um, and and more and more foreign governments and entities are hiding their money there. Um, this investigation identified 206 U.S.-based trusts linked to 41 different countries. 30 of those trusts held assets connected to people or companies accused of fraud, bribery, or human rights abuses. Hidden in the U.S. Right here. (laughs) And that's why this type of investigation is so important. Because... You know, it shows corruption at home. It shows corruption abroad. It brings to light, you know, the injustice of this mechanism in our system in a way that it would just be impossible to know otherwise. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, D-Bag Award. (laughs) We've been doing a lot of D-Bags recently. Hasn't... Well, people... People have been making some really, really self-defeating arguments. Yeah, yeah. So, Michael, what what is the D-Bag Award? What's that all about? So, the, we we enacted the D-Bag Award in honor, in reverence for Alan Dershowitz um, when he made an argument so flatly self-defeating that we had to, to make a new award for it. When he argued that the President of the United States uh, could never take an action that— uh, you know, th- to get himself reelected um, that was impeachable because a president can't be impeached for taking an action in the best interest of the nation, and that president thinks that their reelection is in the best interest of the nation. <laughs> gets me Love every it. time. <laughs> get, it gets me every freaking time. And so, so when someone puts forth an argument so ridiculous and self-defeating, we just have to call it out. We whip out the D-bag. Yeah. So, Nathan... Who is our D-bag this week? I could not be more excited to announce that this week's honorary recipient of the D-bag award is Colorado Representative Laura Boebert. 
<laughs> All right, or Lauren Bobert. Lauren, yeah, Lauren whatever, whatever. Bobert, come on down. Yeah, come on down. So apparently, and this this was actually this was actually new to me. Uh, and, and a funny funny thing is, I think it almost had a uh, what do you call it? like a, a Barbara Streisand effect, where I didn't know about this until she brought my attention to it. So apparently, there's this there's this trend, there's this Twitter hashtag that trends every now and then. That's a uh, hashtag Lauren Bobert is so dumb. Like this, it's this, it's this, I didn't know about it's this. It's a hashtag. recurring hashtag. That's it's a funny. recurring hashtag. And it's like, you know, jokes that people will make. She's so dumb. She does this, you know, it's, it's like, it's like your mama. It's jokes, like your mama jokes. Yeah. But like for Lauren Bobert. Wow. Um, I can't believe one Colorado representative has that much. <laughs> like it's a whole hashtag. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't realize that. So, uh, and I didn't realize that until she apparently started using it to basically be like, oh, yeah, well, whenever I trend, I'm just going to use that hashtag and show people just how smart I actually am. So she tried to do that. Uh, and she posted a video <laughs> in which, I mean, the first, the, the whole thing was stupid. But in the first 30 seconds, every single sentence was just, Mwah. just <laughs> beautifully stupid. So let's let's go through this. So she starts out by saying, "The liberal hacks are at it again with their phony hashtag." Lauren Bobert is so dumb. Dumb, really? I'm not the one trying to pass the largest tax increase in our nation's history. Neither are they. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. The she's 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 referring to the Build Back Better plan, which um, they've they, which some of the iterations of the proposal have been an increase in taxes for wealthy people, but it's not the largest in the nation's history. Uh, I believe the largest in the nation's history was actually in the early 1960s. Um, There's also a much bigger increase during world war two. There's a bigger increase in the nineties. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of critical thinking to think. this it's, is probably not the biggest. <laughs> it's just it's just not true. Like it is large by historical standards, but it's the increase that is large, not the not the blanket number. Mm-hmm. So anyways, so that's fucking wrong. Um she continues. She says, "I'm not the one claiming that a 7 trillion dollar spending splurge will fix the massive inflation we're experiencing here in our country." Neither are they. Yeah. <laughs> it's not $7 trillion. Even mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders' original, like what he originally wanted wasn't $7 trillion. The bill is $3.5 trillion. Where the fuck are you getting that number from? And also, who said anything about it fixing inflation? What? That's not really on the menu. That's it's not, not what really, they're trying to do. That's <laughs> not what they're trying to do. It's about investing in the future by allowing for programs to to help actually improve people's lives so that they can become more economically independent. Inflation is the only measure of economic well as prosperity, Nathan. Everybody knows that. <laughs> she continues. She says, "And I'm certainly not so dumb that I think 7 trillion equals 0." Neither are they. What the fuck? <laughs> so it seems like she so she's referring to the fact that Democrats are saying that this won't add money to the deficit because it will be paid for by taxes by taxes on the rich. Mm-hmm. 
I don't even know what argument she's even, trying to yeah, make. Not even zero. That's not. <laughs> and then she says, quote, and this, this, this is, this part I think is the funniest part. I'm, I'm not going to bother entertaining haters who put this kind of stuff out. By making this video, you are literally doing exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> and like literally the next thing that she says in the video is, let me tell you some facts. Joe Biden is a failed president. That's an opinion. opinion. That's an opinion. <laughs> That's an opinion. God, you're so stupid. It's like, I, I oh my God. I, it's like she tailor made this to be the stupidest possible response. You like, I think SNL we have an episode is, title. SNL is out of a job. Episode. It's a uh, hashtag Lauren Bowman is so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I feel sorry for SNL. They're out of a job. You can't parody this woman. You just can't. You can't make it up. You just, yep. you cannot parody this woman. I mean, how, how did she think this was a good idea? Like, she made herself trend with the, I mean, ha- and I she can't... used the hashtag Lauren Bobert is so dumb. She put that hashtag in the tweet for this video. I mean, you really shouldn't trust the judgment of someone who has a hashtag calling them dumb. <laughs> So I mean, congratulations <laughs> to Lauren Bobert for being our D-bag. And now for our last segment, we are talking about the way that Democrats message, the way they argue, and how it can get so much better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what originally brought this on is that recently? I uh, recently there was a debate between uh, TYT host or co-host uh, Anna Kasparian and uh, Daily Wire, I, I guess founder host whatever uh, Ben Shapiro. Mm-hmm. So you know we, Ben Shapiro. You know Ben <laughs> Shapiro. You know, we've talked about Ben Shapiro. He's he's been he's been an asshat before. Now I I, I think I should probably say. If, in terms of right-wing commentators, which albeit is a low bar, but in terms of right-wing commentators, I would put Ben Shapiro in in when we're, when we're talking about new media, I would put Ben Shapiro in the more like in the more honest category mm-hmm. and the less hacky category. Less psycho. Yeah, yeah less less psycho cuz Ben Shapiro is very talented. He's very talented. Mm-hmm. He's very good at he's very good at debating. He's very good at making arguments sound good. Yeah. And he is very good at using facts. Now, when you dig deep mm-hmm. into them those facts, a lot of them are cherry picked, a lot of them lack context, some of them are red herrings, but at least he does at least attempt to create the persona of somebody that cares about facts. Yeah. And I think that that is a good thing. I mean, he is definitely not like, he's not a coward like Steve Crowder. He's not a, um, like he's not a complete hack like Sean Hannity. He's not a malicious propagandist like Tucker Carlson. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what his motives are. Yeah. I really don't like, I I've been trying to figure him out. But 
but anyways, he the the biggest problem with him is the fact that when you do break apart what he says, because oftentimes his style is basically to do a gish gallop where he throws a lot of things at you and talks really fast. And because he's said so much, it sounds like he's winning. It sounds like he's right. And because he's so confident, it sounds like he must be an expert. But when you actually analyze it, you find out, okay, most of this is most of this is bullshit. Yeah. So Which 20, makes him one of the more annoying talk show hosts. It makes him if, one of the more if, annoying if ones. If even one of the more fact based ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm I, again I'm trying to be I'm trying to be generous because I do want to at least encourage to an extent the use of facts on yeah. people people uh for people on the right. You know, so I'm trying to provide positive reinforcement. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, he and Anna Kasparian had a debate, um, and it was hosted by the Chamber of Commerce, which was obviously going to be filled with people that were more, th- that were more on Ben Shapiro's side. You know, yeah. these are, these are, these are your economic elites. These are people that, that have no interest in, uh, paying higher taxes as rich people, uh, they have no interest in a uh, a Medicare for all system. So uh, right off the bat, obviously, like to an extent, Anna Kasparian was going to be at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, and, and I, I before I say this stuff, I would just like to point out, I, I don't mean anything. I don't mean any disrespect towards Anna Kasparian. I think she's a great activist. I think she's done a lot of great things. And I, I, I tend to agree with her on most most that she says, most of the things she says, I, I agree with. She kind of got her ass kicked in this debate. Hmm. Like, which again is easy to do against Ben Shapiro. It is easy to do against Ben Shapiro again, but you shouldn't he, do it. You should be better than that. <laughs> you should be better than that. So like, so the issue was there were so many moments in which Ben Shapiro would say things that were either misleading, that were red herrings. Um, or that were just complete non sequiturs or things that were just not correct that she could have very easily debunked, but she didn't. Instead, she kind of focused on some standard progressive talking points. Mm -hmm. And that only works if you already agree with somebody. So for example, there was one moment in which Ben Shapiro made the claim that the United States has one of the most progressive tax rates in the world and that he thinks it should be more of a flat rate. Now, Anna Kasparian kind of went back, kind of responded to that by saying stuff like, Oh, well they can afford to pay more. Like, Mm -hmm. and, and they're, 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 and, and she, she also, she also made the claim that there are a lot of these Scandinavian countries that do pay higher taxes which ben, ben Shapiro, again, combated that by saying, well, no, because we have one of the higher corporate tax rates. Now, that is true. We, you know, we do have a higher corporate tax rate than, than a lot of countries. We are, I, I believe we're a little bit above average on the, uh, the OEC. However, and, and, and also, you know, if, you, if you're just looking at federal income tax, it does look like we have a progressive tax rate. But... The thing that Anna Kasparian should have pointed out in this moment was the fact that, okay, yes, but a lot of the richest people in this country 
most of their money is in stocks Mm -hmm. and capital gains rate is at a flat rate and it's lower than most people's income tax. So like, for example, Jeff Bezos, I believe he only has like, you know, only has, uh, only has like $10 billion in liquidity. Hmm. He's like worth, what? what is it? $200 billion now? Yeah. That yeah, means all of least. the rest of that is in stocks. So that means that he assets, is, yeah. that means if we're, if we're talking, that means that that money is being taxed at a capital gains rate that's just flat. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it that way, in a lot of ways, we have a regressive tax rate. Yeah. Also, but, yeah, you need to do a, a fair amount of actually fancy math in order to untangle a lot of the ways that our That's tax true. system is um, regressive to actually be able to do that. To your point, you should be looking at taxes paid versus either wealth or income or something like that. Um, and you should be doing it on a dollars basis, not a per person basis. Because yeah. on a per person basis, you're going to end up you know, with a lot, with, with, with a very, very different answer. And also to your point is we've got a number of regressive taxes systems, you know, tax components in the U.S. as well. We charge yeah. sales tax. It's a huge yeah. driver of local and state taxes. And yeah. it's something that gets totally overlooked because we have, unlike other nations, a dual federalist system where you've got local and the federal taxes. Well, Scandinavia doesn't have that, so they don't need to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Scandinavian countries don't have that. So so anyways, in watching this, again, my, my takeaway was she didn't do a great job. Now, again, I, I, I would like to point out that in the heat of the moment, it can be mm-hmm. hard to think of things off the top of your head. It can be hard to think of things off the top of your head, especially when you're talking to someone like Ben Shapiro that's really good at talking fast and really good at throwing things out at the top of his head. However, when uh, TYT did a breakdown of the debate, the first thing that uh, the, the, the host, um, Cenk Uger, said was, oh, she totally did a great job. She totally, she totally nailed it. She totally represented us well. And mm. I'm just like... Okay, you don't have to you don't have to come out and say she did horribly, but don't pretend that she didn't don't pretend she did better than she did. I mean, yeah. you know, you can you can provide caveats for it, but the only way you could watch that debate and think that she came out on top is if you think that your position by definition is correct and anybody that argues against your position by definition by definition is incorrect. Therefore, if they're making if they're making an argument that comes to a conclusion that differs from the one that you're coming to, they must be losing. Yeah. And that is troubling. Yeah. Because what seems to be happening in debate right now, in terms of, you know, debates among commentators and especially debates among politicians, is that the focus is so much more about let me argue that you have this position. Like, let me, let me say that this is the position you have and therefore you're bad rather than you have this position. Here's why you're wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like, like when Donald Trump would during the debates with, with Joe Biden would claim you're for Medicare for all. And so the argument became not about, okay, here's Joe Biden's healthcare plan. Here's why it's, here's why it's wrong. It's, you believe this and by definition you're wrong. Yeah. 
and the issue here is if you're talking if if you're talking to people that already agree with you that already agree with you on all these issues then obviously saying that is going to make them like you yeah but the point of debate is to allow for a free flow of ideas it's to have a it's to combat ideas it's not to it's not to go out there and say like you have this idea i have this idea let's argue over who has what idea mm-hmm. the point should be about the quality of those ideas and i think that the left and the democratic party have been terrible at that i mean yeah. i would say that a lot of new media uh, a lot of new leftist media does a much better job of focusing on policies and less on talking points but when it comes to when it comes to debates it always feels like it, it feels like they're just taking the bait yeah they're always on the defensive they're always saying no no i i don't support that crazy radical position that you say i support and 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 because it's crazy and radical it is yeah. wrong by definition i support this other thing that I'm not going to get a chance to talk about now because I've spent all my time saying I don't support that crazy radical idea. Yeah. So, so I guess here's, here's, here's the big, the big thing that I'm trying, here's the big point that I'm trying to make here. The right wins when the left is caught defending what culture, cultural issues they do and don't believe. Yeah. Now, to the extent that they impact policy, I would say that you know, I would say you should still have debates, of course, you know, Mm -hmm. so like, uh, so I'm not saying that an issue that would be more cultural, like say abortion is something that you should just shouldn't talk about. Of course you should talk about it. And of course you should advocate for, for policies. Like, you know, um, I'm not saying that stuff like, like trans rights or, 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 or LGBT, you know, Q equality overall is not something that you should talk about as it relates to policy. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that when you ele- when 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 a right-wing politician does something like tries to tries to make the conversation about, I don't know, like Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. And all the left can do to respond is to flail around and not even know how to respond to it without just fact-checking them on the spot. Yeah. It just does not, it does not look well. It, it does not look good. So, yeah. so if, 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 if a Republican makes a stupid claim to a, to a Democrat and says something like, you all want to ban Dr. Seuss, all you should do is just be like, what are you talking about? No, I don't. I don't want to ban Dr. Seuss. You know, company decided they want, didn't want to publish uh, certain books from Dr. Seuss. I'm not trying to ban Dr. Seuss. Why are we even talking mm-hmm. about this? And then immediately shift it to healthcare or immediately yeah. shift it to an issue that actually matters. Yeah. Stop getting bogged down by these Taking stupid the right-wing talking points that put you on the defensive. Just swat them aside and bring up policy. Because Republicans know, and this, this is based on what we talked about in our first segment today. Republicans know that when they start talking about policy, you know, this is why they Glenn lose. Youngkin doesn't have any actual issues on his website, because when they start talking about policy, they lose because people mm-hmm. don't like Republican policies. But they also they a lot of people are also sold also sold by this 
this bullshit narrative that Republicans are trying to put forth that they're the anti-elitist party because they, you know, they, they, because they're the other side wants to ban Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Or, exactly. uh, you know, they're and, just, yeah, they're the pro the past party, pro exactly. the things that you're nostalgic for party. Yeah. Yeah. Freedom and apple pie and 4th of July and all that shit. That's um, uh, Republicans are pro and liberals are anti. And yeah. and to your point, like the more time we spend talking about how we really do like apple pie and 4th <laughs> of July is fine to celebrate, the less time we get to talk about things that convince people that we're actually the right party, not just not the wrong party. And like, yeah. to your point, it's like, I, I like, um, you know, I think, I think Bernie was really good at this. He's a good yeah. model to follow in a lot of ways. It's like, what? I don't want to ban Dr. Seuss, but I know why you're talking about Dr. Seuss. It's because you don't want to talk about health care because you don't have a plan. But I wanted, I know like, because like, yeah, and you can pivot like easily and directly. And the thing is like, we have to spend time talking about those policies and we yeah. have to, we have to, and the easiest way to disarm those straw man arguments is to just pull the rug right out from under them. Just make it not about that argument. It's like, it's like, it's like when, um, you know, you're on like the playground as a kid and someone makes fun of you. The surest fire way to have them continue to make fun of you is to have is to react to their making fun of you is to have a negative reaction because that's what they want that's what they what they're gonna keep gunning for. But if you're like, yeah, I got a big nose, no worries. <laughs> How about let's talk about healthcare? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, or just just swat it aside. I mean, I feel like Democrats are still being, um, like, hurt by the word socialism or the word Marxism. Yeah. And it's, it should be something that is so easy to just swat aside. Yeah, exactly. Like it, they, it's like they clutch their pearls every time they're called a socialist or a Marxist and they try to, I don't know, they, yeah, they, they freak out. Like, a <laughs> and deer that's in where Bernie life. failed every single time he was asked that question. Well, actually, well, I think <sighs> Bernie did it differently. Where he wasn't, he didn't flail. He was just like, "Yeah, I'm a socialist. Whatever." Yeah, you know, let's talk yeah. about healthcare. Which except he's I, not. So <laughs> yeah, except he's not. He's a, well, he's a social democrat. Yeah. Um, but but I don't know. The, it seems to me like the the method here should just be like, "No, I'm not." What are you talking about? Yeah. Like like just 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 respond to him. To respond to that accusation as if it's this. It's like this an inconvenience even yeah like it's the stupidest yeah. thing they could have said and just be like, like it's yeah. yeah like it is what it is it's a child throwing up a fake point and you can quickly dispense with that and get on to the grown-up conversation yeah so that is what democrats and that's what yeah. leftists really need to be yeah. doing all right and that Stop requires getting... a lot of discipline and it yeah. requires that you know what you're talking about you have, you have to know your points yeah. Right. Like, and this is kind of ties it back to the Anakisparian thing, which is like, you must, you have to stay on message. You can't get distracted yeah. by the BS and you have to know what you're talking about well enough to, um, to like not give ground yeah, and to be able to quickly hit the most important points and be able to back them up. Yeah. And that's not, and the thing is, I know that Anna Kasparian knows what she's talking about because I've watched yeah. her 
give really good analysis of policies in the past. Mm-hmm. Like I know that she pays attention to this stuff. I know that she's not an idiot, but yeah, of course, but her entire approach was just completely wrong. And it ended up making her look like a fool. I think that yeah. the thing I like about Ben Shapiro is that he does very quickly swat things to the side. Yeah, he's like very if someone, effective at that. He's very effective at swatting things to the side. If someone does make a stupid point, he's very good at swatting it to the side. Yeah. And just pretending like, okay, you just said this. I, I'm i just going to swat it to the side and pretend it didn't even happen because it was a stupid point. Mm-hmm. And... You know, sometimes he does that to points that are actually legitimate, but oftentimes he does do that when somebody when somebody gets to the point where they take the bait from his gish gallop, mm-hmm. where they do their own gish gallop. Yeah. And and then he wins because he's able to swat those aside really quickly. And with that, we'll end our show as we usually do. With our highlights. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week, I guess, is a bit of a preemptive one. So I'm not going to be on the podcast next week because I'm going to be on fall break. And uh, Jess and I are going to be uh, going to the river and uh, spending a long weekend at the river after having kind of a, a hellish last few months. So it's going to be it's going to be really nice. And I'm really looking forward to spending some time with her. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. What great. about you, Mike's? What's what's your highlight? That's a good question. I think it was this past weekend going camping, getting to spend time with my nieces and my brother and sister in law and my wife. It was our first time camping with our dog. She did great. We just had a really fun time. It was awesome. Um, yeah. I don't have I don't have a lot to look forward to the rest of this week because it's gonna be hellish. So it'll be great. Mm. And with that. Thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum. You'll hear from us again next week.